Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. I'm joined as ever by our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And we're here for a kind of a special edition of the CapEx podcast because just yesterday, uh, we record on Thursday, so on Wednesday of this week, Nicola Sturgeon resigned as First Minister of Scotland after 16 years at the very top of Scottish politics, first as Deputy First Minister and then as uh, First Minister and SNP leader from 2014 onwards. And who better to discuss this than one of Scotland's leading commenters, commentators, journalists, writers, Alex Massey. Uh, Alex has appeared on, it's probably quicker to list the number of publications he hasn't uh, written for uh, down the years, including Cafex, I should add. He's a columnist in The Times, The Sunday Times. He's the Scotland editor at Spectator. He's got his own Substack. He's all over the internet, basically. Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, great to have you here. How, how much of a surprise was it when the news came on Wednesday that Nicola Sturgeon was doing this somewhat hastily arranged press conference. Well, you have this um, uh, paradoxical situation where her resignation was simultaneously a shock, but not surprising. Um, in as much as if you look at interviews Nicola Sturgeon has done over the last 18 months, there was one with The Guardian last July, an appearance at the Edinburgh Book Festival last August, uh, and various other encounters, she has been happy to talk about her life after politics. You know, the possibility of perhaps starting a family, fostering children with her husband, Peter Morrill, uh, the chief executive of the SNP, uh, uh, writing a book, um, various other things. You know, she said she had other things she would like to do with her life. Now, politicians who expect to be in power for the next five years or even 10 years or whatever and so on, don't tend to talk about such things. You know, Nicola Sturgeon, I think, got a bit miffed when people started speculating about her future, but she had invited people to, to do exactly that by speculating upon it herself. So to that extent, there was, I think, an underlying awareness that her time was coming to an end. That said, I don't think anybody expected her to resign quite so precipit uh, uh, precipitously. Um, you know, the timing of this has taken everyone by surprise. You could certainly previously have imagined circumstances in which, for instance, she would carry on until the next uh, uh, Westminster election, presumably at some point next year, um, and, uh, and then decide that it's time to step down, giving her successor time to prepare for the next Scottish parliamentary elections in 2026. 
Uh, obviously, all of that has been brought significantly forward. Um, and it's a range of reasons for it. I don't think there's any single explanation for it. You know, yes, short term domestic difficulties, particularly over issues such as, you know, gender recognition reforms um, have played a part. Um, but so, too, I think is a general sense of post-COVID um, uh, exhaustion in certain ways, um, that once you've been through something like the pandemic and leading the, the, the country through that, then you're... Um, you know, a return to politics as normal suddenly seems rather banal and humdrum, um, you know. Uh, so I think I think that played a part. But the fundamental thing is, is that she had run out of room on the constitutional issue, which is, after all, the SNP's foundational reason for existence. It's the only thing that the party membership and SNP voted truly, madly, deeply care about. Um, everything else is negotiable. Um, you can U-turn on absolutely everything else, um, but you cannot uh, on the constitutional question. And she'd found herself in a situation where it is not clear what her next move is going to be on that. That, uh, you know, as I say, sort of running out of road because, um, you know, the ability to force a referendum is what is the SNP's problem at present. Um, you know, I, I, I rather think it's, it might be easier for them to win one than to get one. Um, uh, and that is the sort of impasse in which the First Minister found herself. Um, and for the first time, really, you had significant internal misgivings and opposition about her plans, about her strategy for achieving independence. Uh, and that's all coming to a head. And I think that is the the decisive factor, probably, in, in helping to persuade her that, you know, if she isn't going to achieve anything more on this front, what's the point in in continuing you know uh let some other bugger have a chance you know <laughs> see how they do um good luck to them yeah i think that kind of leads us on quite nicely to talking about her legacy so as you said independence was the her, her ideological obsession the cause that fired her her sole purpose and in achieving that she's signally failed um but, but what else how else do we assess her legacy in her resignation speech she said she talked about Scotland being a fairer country. She mentioned things like the baby box. Um, what, what do you think her kind of, what do you think she'll be remembered for? Um, well, I think, you have, again, it's a sort of twin track uh, approach that needs to be taken to analysing these kinds of things. You know, the, the concept of independence has been thoroughly normalised in Scotland over the last 10 years. Um, you know, you had a lot of people, even in Scotland, but certainly in London, who a decade ago reckoned that independence was effectively unthinkable. Uh, well, nobody makes that mistake anymore. You know, it's entirely thinkable. It's just a routine part of uh, the national conversation, if you like. So that normalisation um, obviously means that any future independence campaign begins from a much higher floor than was previously the case. You know, it is difficult to imagine circumstances in which the SNP or the independence cause um, fails to command the support of at least 40 percent of voters. Now, that's obviously, you know, uh, it's sufficient to make sure that the issue never goes away. And, you know, unionists tempted to um, be overjoyed this week in terms of Sturgeon's departure should um, bear that in mind and have that temper there in, in exuberance. Um, uh, so you've got that part of it uh, is, is part of her legacy. When you look at other areas of devolved responsibility, however, the picture is very much more mixed. Um, there are relatively few, I think, defining achievements that you can point to and say that has made a genuine difference. There are some. Uh, I would place chief amongst these uh, 
the establishment of a distinct Scottish Social Security uh, service over the last few years. Um, that was established as part of the post-referendum Smith Commission reforms. Uh, but within that, there has been an opportunity for the Scottish Government to introduce new and redistributive benefits. There's a Scottish child payment that costs around £500 million a year that's paid to uh, many of the poorest families uh, in the country. Um, and that has made a, a, a real difference. The irony, obviously, is that this is affordable chiefly through the largesse granted to Scotland by the Barnet formula and on by the levying of higher rates of income tax on Scots of above average incomes. Um, uh, so, you know, which is all of this would contribute to, I think, Nicola Sturgeon's sense that Scotland is a fairer, more progressive country uh, than it was before she took office and certainly fairer, more progressive uh, than you, you know where south of the border. Um, but once you get beyond that, I think, um, you know, long lasting achievements are harder to come by. If you look at the state of education, well, you know, her defining mission was once supposed to be uh, closing the attainment gap between children from poor and wealthy backgrounds. Well, almost no progress has really been made on that, um, uh, you know, uh, and you know, the Scottish government's response to Scotland Scottish pupils faring poorly in international tests and comparisons with other countries and so on has been to withdraw from many of those tests, um, which has always seemed to be a kind of revealing indicator. Um, again, if you look at the National Health Service, well, the problems um, in the NHS in Scotland are not really any different in either degree or kind to those evident elsewhere in the UK. And the government's approach is essentially one of management, not reform. Uh, because frankly, Sturgeon has lacked the courage to take on vested interests across the public sector. Um, she has always preferred to work with these. Now, you could say that that, that uh, demonstrates a sort of progressive big tent corporatist type uh, approach. But at the same time, it's also meant that hard truths have been avoided um, for fear that doing so might upset important constituencies. Because remember, Unlike other political parties, which can be happy with winning 40% of the vote, for the SNP, winning 40% of the vote is only a step, it's only a means towards a greater end, which is the, the achievement of a 50% plus support in a referendum on independence at some point. So anything which might upset um, uh, vested interests and get in the way of that 50% target is, is something which has to be approached very, very carefully and indeed actually generally rejected. I mean, as, as Alex Salmond once said, uh, and Sturgeon is cut from the same cloth here, you know, we should never do anything which really compromises or sets back the independence call. Well, that, that is um, and so that's the guiding star. Well, and that's fine up to a point, but it does mean that a lot of other things don't get done. But yeah, that, that brings me to my next question, which is, do you have any sense that because of the various domestic failings you've outlined, that anyone in the SNP is thinking, well, actually, maybe we, we should focus more on bread and butter stuff in order to get more of a hearing on independence? Or is that too long winded a way of going about things? Yeah, I don't think they I don't think there is that sense, really, because you know, if you speak to voters, um, you know, you have plenty of people who, you know, say, for example, you might be a teacher uh, and, you know, you might think, well, actually, the SNP haven't done a very good job on education. And if I were to judge them solely on this, I, I would have to seriously consider voting for a different party. But this teacher, for instance, supports independence and independence is, you know, a, a, a cause of historical importance and significance. 
significance. Um, when set beside that, does the fate of uh, primary schools really matter very much? Uh, literacy rates in schools. Is that really all that important? Um, so people sort of swallow their doubts and uh, say, well, I'm, I'm going to stick with the SNP because they're the only party that can deliver independence, which is the thing that is fundamentally most important. Uh, and so that gives the SNP a built-in advantage at election time, obviously, because it decouples um, the standard rules of political engagement, which is that, you know, you know, a party does X, Y or Z in power. And then if it disappoints, um, you punish them for it by voting for somebody else. Um, but this creates a barrier to that. Um, so you have people who are not impressed by the SNP's record in government, but they think, well, everything will be different after independence. That's when we'll sort things out. But we have to get there first. Um, so, you know, I don't think, you know, when it comes to an SNP leadership contest, I don't think there is any use really in anybody running for the leadership on a program of public service reform um, uh, because it's not what the, the SNP membership is actually wanting to hear. Um, you know, you, you know, you also have this thing because the SNP is in such a powerful position because of the alignment of Scottish politics along constitutional lines is that it is possible to win elections simply by speaking to and motivating the SNP's core vote. You don't actually have to reach across the divide. You don't have to persuade people currently un unpersuaded by independence to, to, to win a normal election, whether that's a, a Westminster or a, or a Holyrood election. Um, and so the incentives in this leadership contest are obviously going to be to speak to the members, not to the, the wider as yet unpersuaded Scot uh, country. And so, you know, that means um, a focus on the mechanics of how to get to independence to the exclusion, I would expect, of pretty much everything else. I think what you've touched on there is how painful that uh, division along constitutional divides is for unionists, because every kind of domestic policy becomes subservient to the ideology of independence. And, and that's what I found a bit weird to some of the reaction to Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. Even conservatives, even committed unionists have been kind of falling over themselves to praise her as a, as a great communicator, as you know, an incredibly effective politician. But if you're effective in a service of a cause that, that you fundamentally disagree with, why do people feel this need to say how brilliant she is? Well, some of it's a sort of, you know, don't speak ill of the dead um, type thing. Uh, but, you know, and some of it particularly, dare I say it, from uh, people with lobby passes in the uh, Houses of Parliament at Westminster and so on. Some of it is um, just a thing of, well, look, Nicola Sturgeon hates the Tories and she hates Brexit and I hate the Tories and I hate Brexit. So Nicola Sturgeon must be wonderful. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas if you view her from uh, Scotland and so on, her, her record is rather more mixed, shall we say. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, again, there's this, this thing, that, you know, Sturgeon's a magnificent and devastatingly effective campaigner. But there's a difference between campaigning and, and governing, of course. And when you look beneath the bonnet at the, her record in government in Scotland, it is much less impressive than it might seem to, to people from outside Scotland. Um, and, you know, the the... <sighs> You know, she's a great communicator, too. I and mean, we saw that during COVID, you know, her, her pandemic briefings were always, you know, clearly expressed. Um, she persuaded people that she was taking things seriously, that, that, that uh, you know, she was exercising her duty of care, if you like, or uh, and so on. And that stood in, in contrast in terms of public perception to how other political leaders across these islands were performing. But again, if you look at outcomes, um, uh, you know, move beyond the rhetoric. Uh, and the, you know, plausibility of the surface expression, um, you know, you see that outcomes were essentially 
be exactly the same everywhere. Um, so all these fine words, reassuring and useful as they may have been, uh, didn't actually help deliver any better outcome. And that is, I think, one of uh, the parts of Sturgeon's legacy that is most important to appreciate, that there's a lot of surface finery. Um, but when you, you dig deeper and so on, you know, where, what's the substance? Where's the beef? Um, and that 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 is something that you pro that is much harder to uh, discern from outside Scotland than it is in it, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's why I mentioned the baby box, because to me, I think it's, it, you know, it sounds lovely, you know, but it's 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 giving gifts to middle class people, any kind of like any kind of universal yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's a it's a gimmick, um, and there's nothing wrong with it as, if you like, a a symbolic declaration of community and belonging and welcome to the world and welcome to our country and all the rest of it. Um, uh, you know, that's all perfectly harmless. It doesn't cost a huge amount in the grander scheme of things, um, but it is you know purely a gesture, piece of gesture politics. What it typically, of course, with the SNP, however, is is that it was introduced alongside a claim that the baby box provision of the baby box would help lower infant mortality for uh, a claim for which there is precisely zero substance or evidence to back it up um and even in finland where they stole the baby socks baby box idea from um you know the finns don't say that this is you know it's the baby box that has contributed to their very low rates of infant mortality it's a whole load of other issues which is not a surprise when you start to think about it obviously but you know so but you're right this was a a, a, a very typical sturgeonite policy and as much as it you know it sounds lovely um it's symbolic um uh it allows for a point of differentiation uh from the the hated tories um but actually what does it deliver in substantive terms very little yeah just um coming on to sort of nicola sturgeon the woman if you like who talked about her political legacy I mean, what's your impression of what she's like as a as a kind of character? I've read things that have said, for example, that she's much more left wing than she lets on um, in her kind of first ministerial office. I mean, what's your view on that? Do you think underneath there's this sort of burning radical still? Uh, a little bit. I mean, you have to remember that she's a nationalist first before she's left of centre. You know, she joined the SNP when she was a teenager, still at high school, uh, you know, in Scotland in the uh, 1980s. Uh, now, at that time, you know, the SNP was not itself a particularly left of centre party um and if you hated the conservatives and the impact of thatcherism on uh local communities and particularly in mining areas such as Esher, then you know the labor party was the much more obvious place to go if you wanted change um but you know the neil kinnock's labor party was never quite good enough for, for nicola sturgeon um uh partly because at that time she would have been very much on the left wing of kinnock's labor party i think um but also because she decided at a very very young age that independence was the 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 future the you know what she really believed in and um and she's never wavered from that you know she she is you know significantly more left-wing than say alex salmond was she has very little of a relationship with scotland's business community for instance she's not particularly interested in it i think her decision to form a coalition government with the green party which she didn't need to do um you know the smp could have governed as a 
minority and purchased green votes for budgets in the traditional fashion um, very easily. But, you know, she liked the idea of, as she would put it, a progressive alliance um, that also would lock in a majority uh, for independence at, at, at Holyrood, not just in terms of this parliament, but potentially after the 2026 Holyrood elections, at which point that, that, that pro-independence majority would become quite significant politically. Um, you know, one of the interesting areas that to, to look at is the SNP's relationship with North Sea, North sea Oil and Gas. You know, for 40 years, more than 40 years, you know, the black gold beneath the North Sea was going to essentially fund and lubricate um, the finances of an independent Scotland. Now, Nicola Sturgeon takes a very different view, you know, that... Uh, um, the SNP's policy is no longer to extract maximum economic value from the North Sea. You know, new developments should not take place, should not proceed. The future is green, renewable and net zero. Uh, now, that's fine as a policy uh, preference. The You know, you can debate the pros and cons of it, but it's, you know, but it is a significant step change for the SNP. And it demonstrates, I think, the extent to which Sturgeon is a much more sectional politician than, say, Alex Salmond was. Um, Sturgeon, you know, sees herself as a, a progressive reforming force. Um, uh, uh, and so, you know, the, the green issues are vastly more important to her than they were previously to the SNP. Um, and you have have a you know there are rumblings of discontent within the nationalist movement particularly in Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland about the impact of essentially closing the North Sea would be um, and that's symptomatic also of her complete disinterest in corporate affairs in business in commerce um, you know she has no real relationship with um, the private sector in Scotland you know it's not her her uh, comfort zone you know you put her in a in a room with representatives from charities and other third sector organisations, and she is fantastic. You know, um, she knows everybody. She knows everything about their issues. She's formidably well briefed. Uh, on top of all the all the issues, and but you put her in a room with uh, businessmen and businesswomen, and she's at sea. You know, she'll mouth the words, but it's quite clear she doesn't really know the tune. Okay. I'll tell you one thing that I admire about her is uh, she loves literature. You know, in a way that like other politicians will sort of, you know, you, you ask them what book they're reading and they'll always have some kind of like typical Tory answer. Like I think David Cameron used to say his favourite book was Our Island Story. You know, it couldn't be more on brand. But I think she genuinely loves reading. So I'll say that for her. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, and, you know, here, here's one difference between her and her predecessor. When Alex Salmond would be, sometimes be asked about his books of the year, you know, um, Salmond would always list, you know, three or four books, and they would all be Scottish books about Scotland by Scottish authors. Um, Sturgeon, to her credit, is quite happy to say, well, actually, this novel by some comparatively, you know, little-known Nigerian novelist or whatever, um, it was her favourite book of the year. Um, but it's also one of these things that I think, you know, she gets a bit of a free pass. You know, the other politicians also read books. Some of them even write them, you know. I mean, Jesse Norman, for instance, you know, splendid books on Edmund Burke and uh, Adam Smith. You know, even if you limit the field to First Ministers of Scotland, I mean, Donald Dewar was a, a voracious reader um, of fiction and non-fiction and all the rest of it and so on, but and okay, it was in the pre-social media world and so on, but you didn't get people gushing over themselves 
themselves by saying, gosh, our first minister can read. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, how glorious. Aren't we a privileged, happy people? Um, you know, blessed to be led by uh, politicians of, of, of such cultured sophistication and seriousness. I mean, you know, nobody treated Donald Dewar like that because you know, and he would have thought it ridiculous to 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 be so treated. Um, so I think that, you know, you know, yes, it's nice, but at the same time, it's it's also quite a revealing thing about how Sturgeon is actually judged by very different standards from lots of other politicians. Do you think there's a gender aspect to that? Oh, probably, probably. And, it, and sometimes that works against her and sometimes in her favour. Um, uh, you know, it is undoubtedly true that people will say things on social media in a very gendered, misogynistic way about her, and that some of the some of the opposition to her has a, as if you like, a gendered component, sexism, as we used to call it. But I think it's now misogyny, which is a slightly different thing, I think. But at the same time, you know, she also benefits um, on in other areas um, or arenas um, from from being a woman, particularly when set up or put beside or compared with um you know uh, a lot of male politicians um so you know uh, it swings and roundabouts i think on uh, uh, you know in that sense um for her um uh but you know yeah i mean like any woman in in, in public life and so on you know there's clearly you know as i say a sexist element to responses to her you know and, and i think it would be you know ludicrous to pretend that that isn't the case Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Do you think that whoever succeeds her, just by dint of being the SNP's leader, will be judged in a similar way, in the sense that they get a bit of a free pass on various issues? Or is it, does it depend which publication we're talking about? You know. I, th I think, um, I think it'll be difficult because um, whoever it, whoever succeeds Sturgeon is not going to have anything like the same profile that she did. Um, and uh, that's not just a question of profile within Scotland, um, but within the UK as a whole. 
and nor are they going to find a means by which they can gain that profile immediately. You know, if you think about it, you know, in 2014, 2015, you know, plenty of people in England knew a little bit about Nicola Sturgeon, but she wasn't a particularly high profile person, even though she was you know, regularly on television, you know, in terms of her, her UK wide profile really was a, um, uh, arose during the Brexit referendum, uh, you know, when she's taking part in UK wide events on television debates and so on, and is in some ways seen by many people, particularly on the left as advocating the left of centre passionate remain case that Jeremy Corbyn could and should have um, offered if he'd believed in it. Um, when, when, and of course, as, as Diane Abbott has helpfully confirmed this week, you know, in his heart of hearts, Jeremy is a Brexiteer. Um, so Sturgeon, Sturgeon offered a lot of people um, in other parts of the UK that kind of uh, rhetorical leadership that they weren't getting from Labour at the time. And that gave her a, a profile and a platform at a UK level that, that none of her successors is going to enjoy um, in Immediately, it's going to be a, a who's they, who are they, why do we have to listen to them type thing. Oh yeah, so, so should we get, should we do some runners and riders? Um, who do you think is going to be the successor? Uh, ah, well, um, uh, it's not not clear. Um, you know, in 2014, when Alex Salmon steps down, it's very obvious that Nicola Sturgeon is going to be the successor, and nobody's going to challenge her, and there'll be a seamless transition, and it'll work very effectively for for the nationalists. This time is completely different. There is no obvious successor. Um, uh, there are a number of potential candidates. Um, a lot, I think, will depend on whether John Swinney, the Deputy, Prime, Deputy First Minister, uh, wants to do the job. Now, Swinney has led the SNP before, um, uh, albeit nearly 20 years ago. Um, that wasn't a particularly happy experience for him, but a lot of things have changed since then. If Swinney decides he wants to do it, then I think he becomes the prohibitive favourite because he's very popular amongst grassroots members. Uh, he's, again, been in the party for the entirety of his life, um, uh, a likeable, well-respected figure across Scottish politics. Um, and I think I think Swinney would, would be the favourite if he wants to run. But received wisdom recently has been that he isn't interested, in which case attention then begins to you know turn elsewhere. Angus Robertson has spent a long time denying any interest in ever leading the SNP, which, as we know, is a, a often a leading indicator of a burning ambition to do so. Um, uh, so I, it is widely expected that uh, that Robertson, after all, you know, formerly leader of the SNP group at Westminster, um, currently the Constitutional Secretary and Culture Secretary in the Scottish Government at Holyrood, you know, it's w widely expected that that he. Uh, will run, um, and he has a greater public profile than some, some more experienced than others. But it's not clear to me that there is necessarily a natural or large constituency of Robertsonians. Uh, you know, what is his base within the party? Um, so then you come to, you know, a slightly different generation, a younger generation, um, and you have Kate Forbes, the finance secretary, who's currently on maternity leave. You know, she is bright, well-respected. Business leaders um, find her a breath of fresh air. Um, she worked quite constructively with the British government, uh, Michael Gove in particular, on establishing free ports in Scotland. Um, uh, 
you know, she's not a conservative, but she is much more open to, you know, concepts like, you know, economic growth um, that, you know, the that Nicola Sturgeon isn't terribly interested in. You know, Sturgeon, you know, generally, you know, likes to talk about a well-being economy, whatever that means. Um, uh, usually, I think, means a poorer one, but a nicer, kinder, cuddlier one, um, because poverty is ennobling um, in some mysterious fashion. Uh, uh, Forbes appreciates, you know, she's a, an economic realist. Um, the questions that um, arise around her are, are threefold. First, does she really want to do it? Secondly, even if she does, does she need to do it now? She had a baby last August, and while that doesn't prevent her from doing it, it's obviously a complicating factor. Um, and, and thirdly, uh, the fact that she is a devout Christian, a member of the Free Kirk of Scotland, um, uh, uh, and and so her views on a whole range of social issues, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, obviously the latest gender stuff, um, all of those are at least potentially out of step with mainstream SNP opinion. So she she might have, if you like, the Tim Farron problem. You know, how do you lead a party that thinks of itself as being very progressive and liberal on all of these issues if you yourself take a different view as a matter of conscience and faith um, to the party on, on these on these issues, even if you're not going to be legislating on any of these areas? You know, it, it, there is a potential problem there. Um, uh, it's also the case that time is on her side. She could easily decide to, to sit this one out. Um, I could also envisage a situation in which Swinney runs and with the understanding that Kate Forbes would be then sort of lined up as his longer term replacement in a few years time. Um, you know, that's pure speculation on my part, but, you know, that would uh, I could see the merit in that. Um, then you're looking at, uh, you know, other people, you know, Hamza Youssef, the health secretary in the Scottish government, you know, again, very ambitious. But, you know, I think there's a quite a profound mismatch between his estimation of his abilities and that uh, and uh, the estimation other people have of those abilities. Um, and, you know, so that'd be a problem. Um, and then you're into the ranks of sort of junior ministers at Hollywood, people like Neil Gray and others who have uh, no public profile whatsoever. Um, and so I think a lot will depend on the terms and conditions of the leadership race. I mean, if the, the shorter the race, the bigger the advantage, um, experience, seniority and, and name recognition will have, then less space there'll be for someone else to to come through the middle, um, you know. You know, is there a Kemi Badenoch figure, you know, that that will uh, sweep the, the members off their feet if they're given the opportunity to vote for them? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, the longer the, the, the race, to, um, you know, the longer the course, if you like, the greater the opportunity for someone to emerge. But, you know, I, I suspect there'll be quite a lot of pressure to try and get it done relatively quickly. Yeah, it's tempting for unionists to think that, particularly ones who don't actually spend much time in Scotland, <laughs> To think that oh, well, Sturgeon's gone, the game's up, basically. But the way you were talking about it earlier, it sounds more like support for independence has become a kind of cultural constant for a large chunk of the population. So, I mean, is it really that contingent on who the leader of the SNP is? I mean, what? How do you see that relationship? Uh, well, again, it depends on the goal. Um, you know, if the goal is to to be the largest party in the Scottish Parliament and to govern Scotland in perpetuity um then you know you don't need 50 percent support for that you know 40 percent will be enough um and uh uh you know to maintain a, a dominant position uh so you know that it seems to me you know the smp's floor is so high and the core vote so solid that in a lot of circumstances yes it, it may not matter very much in electoral terms who is leading the party but to get to that you know 
to get to a situation where um, voters are demanding a referendum, demanding another say on independence, and then um, to actually get the 50% plus uh, that's required for that, then leadership does matter, I think. You know, it's one of these things, if you, you know, political scientists love to talk about how, you know, actually leadership is much less important in politics than people think. It's the core fundamentals, the underlying factors that do, that explain 90, 95% of election outcomes. And one thinks, yes, that's absolutely true. Okay, that's fine. But in politics, um, if every in a situation, particularly in a situation where every vote counts, that last five percent that is unexplained by underlying or fundamental factors becomes extremely important. It's the difference between the result going one way and the other. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I think Sturgeon's departure necessarily sets the SNP back because none of her replacements have the sort of breadth and depth of connection to the typical Scottish voter that she has. Um, and, and it will take a long time for them to develop that if they succeed in doing so at all. And you know, th there's also that just sort of underlying nagging sense in the back of your mind that if she's going because she can't make it work then who could you know uh and you know so will smp voters be quite as super mo motivated to go to the polls as they uh as, as they were i mean again you look at 2015 the smp went 56 out of 59 constituencies in scotland uh in 2017 they lose you know 20 seats um uh and that's partly because because unionists got better at uh, tactical voting. Um, and part of it was that in 2017, SNP voters were a little less enthused to go to the polls. So they had a, a get out the vote problem in certain constituencies, which contributed to their, their defeats. So that's where, you know, enthusiasm obviously does matter. And can any of Sturgeon's successors uh, must uh, generate that level of enthusiasm at election time. And again, it's not quite clear because if independence isn't imminent, then the urgency of voting SNP um, is, is reduced a little. Um, and if you have a situation where you have a Labour government uh, in London that that many Scottish voters can can live with, broadly speaking, you know, regardless of their views on the constitutional question, then, you know, does that cool the temperature on the national question just a little bit? Does it reduce the salience of independence, even if only by a couple of percentage points um, and for a relatively short period of time? If it does, then it changes the calculations quite all, all over again. Um, and I think there are plenty of people people in the SNP who are concerned that a Labour government in, in London could do precisely that, um, which is why Sturgeon's proposal to, to make the next election a de facto referendum should be understood partly as a means of keeping the SNP activist base and core vote motivated, um, because otherwise, you know, if the election was to be, do you want a Labour government or do you want a Tory government? Well, people might cotton on to the fact that to have a Labour government, you probably need as many Labour MPs as you can get, which means voting Labour, not SNP in a lot of Scottish seats. Yeah, and I was going to say, what, what do you, how do you assess the consequences of this for the rest of the UK? Do you think that this is uh, good for Labour? Do you think it's yeah, it was often a, a favourite trick of Tories to you suggest that a Labour government would be a puppet of the SNP with that fear gone. Do you think Labour uh, will be viewing this news with delight? Oh, undoubtedly. Labour are the big winners here, um, because, as you say, you know, it is just simply not credible that some SNP leader that almost nobody in England knows anything about and so on is going to be the sort of evil mastermind orchestrating a, a puppet Labour government and all the rest of it. So, I mean, Labour never had to offer the SNP anything. I mean, in fact, you know, because what can the SNP do? You know, if you had a, a hung parliament with Labour as the largest party, but in government, you know, 
the SNP then have a choice. You know, do you bring down that government and bring and let the Tories back in? Well, good luck selling that in Scotland. You know, um, you know, the, the SNP will obviously go into the next election arguing, as Sturgeon has done in recent months, that there is no functional difference between the Labour Party and the Conservatives. They both want to deny Scottish democracy. You know, by refusing to to permit a, a, a or agree to a, a second independence referendum, they are both functionally in favour of Brexit in as much as one of them really believes in it, and the other accepts that it has happened and so therefore must have some meaning even if it's uh, on a sort of you know disagreeable a disagreeable meaning um but you know again you know you're really asking people to say there's no difference between labor and the conservatives and that their own experience of their own lives i think tends to contradict that and so i think it's a difficult sell for the nationalists um but you know labor yeah, Labour returning to power is 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 is, is, is bad news for the SNP, in as much as you know it is clearly in their political interests for an evil Conservative government to be holding the reins of power in London in perpetuity. All right, well, Alex, that's been uh, incredibly enlightening and detailed uh, run through what's been quite a dramatic week in Scottish politics. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. Um, and I think this will probably be something that most of our listeners will be celebrating, if indeed it is a blow to the nationalist cause, as you suggest. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us, to all our listeners, um, as well at home as ever for listening. And do tune in next week for another episode. And of course, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and just by telling your friends by good old fashioned word of mouth. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.